This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hello, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. And we're very fortunate, again, to have a, another great guest with us today, Dr. Maha Lachumi Arijana, Global Coordinator, International Services for the Acquisition of Agrobiotech Applications, otherwise known, of course, as, as ISA, uh, and also uh, the Executive Director with Malaysian Biotechnology Information Center, or, or MABIC. And uh, Dr. or Dr. Maha, as she's known to, to those in academic science and ag and food communities, uh, we're very fortunate to get to have her. Dr. Maha, how are you? Good. I'm great, Duke. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you for, for joining us. Well, if it's okay, I'll I'll jump into the first question. Well, as you know, it's a timely uh, a timely chance to talk for, for the two of us. Uh, something happened in the last few hours. I'd like to, to get your thoughts on the United Nations. The UN has issued their their annual State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World report, and uh, and unfortunately, the news is not not good at all. Uh, maybe the most eye popping number for us here in Asia is that more than half of the world's undernourished live right here uh, in our region. I believe it's 418 million people that they've noted. And that speaks to a topic I know of, of passion for you and a particular relevance here in Asia, that's food security, or sadly, all too often, uh, food insecurity. Uh, unfortunately, the global pandemic has only exposed and exacerbated so many problems within the food systems uh, we've seen come to light and it's created some new ones as well. So in, in that spirit, um, and in light of that, uh, your perspective maybe on some of the next steps that we need to take to help buffer food security here in Asia and around the world. Now, the issue with food security or insecurity is it is a multifaceted pro- problem. It's caused by several factors, and the decisions to address this is driven by even more factors. So that is that creates a problem by itself. So there is no one cookie-cutter approach that will solve this problem. And for me, coming from a scientific background and my work in agribiotechnology, I've been doing this for the past 18 years now, and I'm very passionate about what biotechnology could offer. And I don't think I'll be exaggerating. This is what I want to say. Many think that food insecurity cannot be solved by biotechnology or by biosciences or any technology because it's caused by, say, political instability, lack of infrastructure, lack of logistics. But this is my opinion. Now, all these things, political instability or whatever, it cannot be solved overnight. And we, the scientists who are involved in science, we have got not much say or control on this. But the scientists already have solutions in hand, in the lab, all sitting as piles of papers in regulators' office. And these are the products of biotechnology, the high quality seeds. So that are there and this can solve many of farmers' problems, consumers' problems, and also the planet's problem of sustainable farming. So I think this will offer a solution, but there must be so much of um, strength, political will, and everyone coming together to embrace technology. Understood. That's, you know, that's, that's something we certainly hear a lot because we've had this podcast uh, as far as the need for innovation. And I can, I can sense maybe a, a sense of frustration, perhaps, with some of the technologies just sitting there waiting to be used. And that, that leads me to my second question, really. Um, if you, you have a couple of hats that you wear, but your hat with ISA, thinking about the, the role that ISA plays. And I know there's a big report that, that is issued, I believe, reg- regularly, if not annually, around the adoption of biotech crops for commercial commercialization worldwide. And when it comes to biotech crops, I don't think it's any great secret where GMOs 
maybe no agricultural tool technology is more um, misunderstood or certainly a source of more debate and uh, between facts and fiction than, than, than biotech uh, when it comes to, to ag inputs. So while general adoption for biotech crops has grown, certainly in many regions, there's certainly more room for growth. Uh, and I'm wondering, in your perspective on this topic, what's the primary reason, in your view, that's limiting maybe some of the progress globally? And, and what can, can be done really from food value chain stakeholders collectively to help that situation? Reasons are actually a plenty, Duke. Now, the problem is, where do I start? Because I've been involved in this for the past 18 years, and we see so many problems coming up uh, against biotechnology, which doesn't hold any water. Uh, now, I cannot single out one or two, but now I want to talk about two main driving forces that stifle the growth of adoption of biotech crops. Uh, you rightly pointed out that ISA produces this report. It's called the Global Status of Commercialized Biotech Crops. And uh, the last report shows that biotech crops is cultivated uh, by 17 million farmers on 190.4 million hectares of land in 29 countries. And that is 55% of developing countries. And uh, we have squashed the accusation that um, this biotechnology crops and biotechnology will not favor or benefit low uh, uh, resource poor farmers. Now, today we see many farmers from developing countries and resource poor farmers benefiting from biotech crops. Now, yet there is so much of potential in many countries to adopt crops that will benefit farmers, but not only farmers, but also consumers. And in many countries, progress stopped. And this is frustrating. Progress stopped after adopting just one crop, like in the Philippines, in China, India, Vietnam. So I feel the main reason is political will. And now what drives political will or the lack of political will? Uh, there are many factors. One of it is all these fear mongering strategies, fake news, pseudoscience propagated by the critics of the technology. Now, the other uh, frustration is there are critics of the technology within the scientific groups as well, within the policymakers, within the regulate, uh, regulatory um, uh, community who are supposed to solve all this problem. Now, there are so much of risk-averse attitude, wait-and-see attitude. And this also drives or this also influences the political will. So I think this has to change. Um, I feel the later where uh, the, the enforcement officers, the regulation regulators who are very risk-averse is even a huge problem, a bigger problem. So we need science-based decisions. In many countries, we have very good policies. We've got very good regulations. But the decision-making uh, process or the enforcement of these uh, regulations are not science-based. So I think it is really important that we step up on these issues. And for me, another thing is it is very, very sad to see in a number of countries, scientists stop doing research on GM crops, uh, agriculture, because they find the regulations are very stifling. So this is what we need to address very quickly. Understood, understood. Certainly a lot of passion. I understand it's a, it is a, a frustrating uh, situation, as you, as you know. So on to the third question, and if it's okay, we'll pivot back to the UN report that just came out recently. I'm thinking about um, uh, looking at one particular aspect of it. According to the report, we are, we are not on track to meet uh, the SDG number two, Sustainable Development Goal number two. Zero hunger. And in fact, we're, we're growing farther and farther from that target. Uh, as of right now, according to the report, I believe it's uh, we're saying by 2030, we'll miss that target by about 660 million people. And 
Unfortunately, that's only been made worse by the pandemic. We're saying that's actually created an additional 30 million. They've added to that figure. So it's farther apart today than we were, unfortunately, uh, recently in, in hitting that target. So keeping that in mind, uh, thinking about the effects of COVID-19 we've seen here across the region, there are heartbreaking examples of, of how, understandably, the movement restrictions were put in place uh, initially, and some of them still are in place, in, uh, particularly in the early part of the, the pandemic and the days of the pandemic across the region we saw. Again, heartbreaking examples of farmers having to dump fruits and vegetables, you know, around the region due to transport issues, you know, labor shortage issues that some still lingering, disruption with access to inputs and a host of challenges that, that farmers face, particularly as pronounced really in, in the first uh, first few months of, of the pandemic. With that in mind, uh, I think about those challenges. If you were, uh, you know, the UN has a big meeting coming up not too long from now, this Food System Summit. In fact, the, the pre-summit is being held at the end of this month, I believe. And I'm just wondering if you had a seat at that table, if you were if you were able to, to have that audience and, and go to them to say, hey, this is actually something that we have to have in order to, to really improve the food systems. What, what would that be? Well, this is my wish list then, Duke. Uh, I've already mentioned policies and regulations. We have them, but it is not implemented based on science. So we need we need regulators, we need enforcement officers, we need policymakers and politicians to set their ideology aside and embrace science in decision making. And we have seen this, and this is really, uh, again, very sad, where we have seen policymakers, when we move them from one ministry to another ministry, their ideology changes according to their new portfolio. Now, I think this is not fair. Politicians do the same thing as well. From when they're Minister of Agriculture, they're very pro-biotechnology. They want to adopt things. But when we, when they are changed to Minister Ministry of Environment, suddenly their policies changes. So we need to set all this aside. We need to look at science and what the planet needs, what the human being needs. So food security and also sustainable development. It's not just about making sure we have enough food, but making sure the planet has time to heal as well. Making sure the planet has got, is also healthy. And this is where we have to have many things in, in order. So that's policies and regulations. The other one is I also see the awareness of food, nutrition and food production is very, very low among the public. So we we see obesity increasing. We see people with diabetes, high blood pressure, and all these preventable diseases increasing. And that's mainly because there is no awareness on the right nutrition. So I feel the subject, these subjects has also, uh, it has to be enhanced. Awareness has to be uh, has to be strengthened and a lot of misinterpretation among the public. So this has to be addressed as well. Now, the other one, we see growing trend of romanticizing agriculture. Now, it should be minimized because we feel, we see that people want to have food from a backyard, from an auntie, uncle, growing things from a backyard, from an old couple doing things at home. Now, that's all well and good because we want all approaches to come together, a backyard farming, an urban farming, a large-scale farming. We need all these approaches to come together so that we can meet food security as well as sustainable farming. So uh, I think we should be more, be more pragmatic, more far-sighted than romanticizing agriculture. Now, the other one, of course, especially in developing countries, is more investment for research, development, technologies, commercialization in agriculture and agribusiness. 
Uh, and my two last point is young people. We need to get young people involved in agriculture. How can we make this agriculture profession um, not something that they have to really work so hard in the farm, but something that looks easier to be done with the help of technology, something that they want to be involved, something that's lucrative that they want to be involved. We need younger people to get into agriculture. And finally, I think digitalization of agribusiness is very important. The pandemic is the best teacher. It has taught us so many things that we were not really looking at. So it is time to look at all these gaps in the whole supply chain. So digitalization will be another thing that we need to look at. Thanks for that answer. No, I, and that's another thing we hear a lot from folks like you as far as you know, if there is any silver lining to the COVID-19, maybe that's it, that it's, it's, it's sort of it's sort of forced the issue. And, and you've seen this, this sort of relook and maybe greater adoption of digital and, uh, and a lot of other um, new platforms and, and ways of doing the business and connecting farmers to markets and, and on from there. Excellent. Well, if it's OK, we'll move on to the, the fourth question um, and uh, getting back to the U.N. again. Um, earlier this year, they also had a, another report that was issued. And in that report, I believe that they noted, I believe two thirds of the children in our, in our region are suffering from the effects of malnutrition, which is a staggering, really unbelievable number. Um, and in relation to that, thinking about children and malnutrition, we spoke earlier uh, in a previous episode with uh, with uh, Tamina Leilani Sharif of IRI, International Rice Research Institute, to talk a little bit about biofortification, among other topics, and golden rice in particular. And I'm just thinking, again, your perspective, specifically around uh, biofortification and the role it could play, mentioning again the what we're seeing as far as malnutrition rates with, with, with children in this region. Um, is more is there more that could be done with biofortification that should be done, that could be done, that we're missing an opportunity, perhaps? I think biofortification is really important, and this can be achieved through many technologies. We know this, either it's conventional breeding or just mixing, remixing after production or through biotechnology, whatever technology, as long as safety is not compromised, I think this is really important. Now, a lot of people debate on this, saying that why do we need golden rice? Why do we need banana rich in minerals or vitamins? Just give them more food, a diverse food. But this is very ideologist thinking as well. Now, we eat a colorful a dish, right, in a, in a plate. But those in the remote areas, those who are, who are really malnourished, those are really poor, they do not have enough money to buy food, they will just depend on one staple food. Many will, it, it can be cassava, it could be rice, it could be tapioca, it could be even potato. So for these people, I've seen a, a documentary and it was really eye-opening. When these people have a little bit of extra money, they are not going to buy a full range of uh, vegetables or fruits. They buy one kg of meat. Why? Because if you cook one kg of meat, the whole family can eat. If you buy vegetables and fruits, it's not going to be filling. So they want to make sure that that's bulk. So vegetables and fruits is not their main priority, but we know that this too is the one which provides the minerals and the vitamins and the fiber. And without that, you're going to have so many diseases. So this is where uh, the debate on uh, people can just buy anything. They can they can have other things to eat, just not just putting vitamins in staple food does not hold water because they are far away from the reality. So we need to biofortify. And I think what is more important, of course, it's already happening, is biofortifying staple poor man's food like cassava and uh, rice and um, banana. So this is this is really important. 
That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Well, we've we've come to the last question, and this is a typically with this fifth question we uh, turn turn, the, turn it down a little bit because it's been we've talked about a lot of tough topics, so, and some things are really a little discouraging. So, with the fifth question, we're just uh, we'd like to do is, is maybe have you look into your crystal ball, look into the future a bit, and think about uh, some good things that are happening, maybe some positive trends, some opportunities that you think will come to fruition, maybe ten or so years down the road. Any good positive predictions or uh, things you think we're close to? Well, I'm not an economist. I'm just passionate about a technology. So I'm going to be futuristic here. Uh, I think alternative proteins through uh, precision fermentation will play a huge role. And this will uh, even change the way we look at food. And uh, as I said, food security is not just about having enough food, but also making sure it's sustainably produced. And this is where uh, precision uh, fermentation and producing plant-based meat or lab made meat through cell culture is going to be um, it's, it's going to change the landscape and i really hope again uh, looking at the past experience from genetic modification and uh, other new technologies we need to create awareness on this so if we really nurture this uh, it's going to solve a lot of problem it's going to give opportunities for graduates to have jobs in biotechnology. It's going to produce food in a sustainable manner. It's going to provide high quality meat and it's going to solve the animal welfare issues that we have. So I really, I'm very excited to see how this is going to move and I will really support this technology. Thank you for that. Thank you as well for your time today. We, we really appreciate having you here. You're officially off the five good questions hot seat. We appreciate again your time and your perspective today. Thank you, Dr. Mai. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview.